Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and this is where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page, Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to empower and inspire a community of people who take every opportunity to live a high-performing life. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice that brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. And now the entire approach is available for you to digest online from the comfort of your own home. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook Reconditioning HQ Revolution community and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Team up with Matrix. If you're striving for that competitive edge, make sure Matrix is on your team so you have everything you need to build a winner from start to finish. With over 500 products, exclusive training tools, and years of experience, we can help you create a facility that maximizes athletic potential in new ways. We can deliver a wide range of complete programming solutions to build strength, explosiveness, speed, and agility in athletes of all kinds. Our partnerships with coaching professionals make it easy to access expert insight that enhances the way your team trains. And of course, everything Matrix is engineered and tested to meet the most stringent international standards for safety and quality. So we'll be with you season after season season for years. For more information, go to Matrix Canadian team site, teamupwithmatrix.com forward slash CA. How would you like to increase your athletic performance and reduce your risk of injury? If this sounds good to you, please allow me to introduce you to the all-new Isofit MSK. The multi-patented Isofit MSK is the world's first full-body, portable, isometric strength training device. Since launching in November 2020, the Isofit MSK is now helping thousands of people across 18 countries live pain-free, high-performing lifestyles. Whether your goal is to enhance muscle strength and endurance, improve neuromuscular potentiation, strength strengthen tendons and bones, or enhance cardiovascular performance, the Isofit MSK does it all. To learn more about the Isofit MSK, please visit www.isofitmsk.ca. That's Isofit with a P-H-I-T, MSK.ca. Remember to use the discount code IHPS at checkout to save yourself $250 per unit. The Isofit MSK is proudly made in Canada. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Marin Goubet. Marin is a PhD in educational psychology and currently helps organizations understand the intimate connection between innovation and contextual social emotions. Growing up in Finland among forests and paper mills, she developed an early interest in how things are made and how they work. Her formative career experiences included early management roles in corporate and industrial settings, and Marin was the first woman on an executive committee of a large manufacturing organization. While raising a family, she became an accidental homeschooler for six years, which led to an abiding interest in learning in all its forms. In 2019, she completed her PhD. Her research focused on how context influences creative thinking and her work on gender attrition from the fields of science, technology, engineering, and math, known as STEM, has earned several awards. She has recently earned certifications in psychological safety and in fostering healthy and emotional cultures in teams. With the overdue but emphatic public discourse on equity, diversity, inclusion, and social justice. Her goal now is to support leaders and organizations in developing cultures that invite everyone to innovate. I'm honored to have her on the show today. Welcome, Marn. So we had some technical difficulties last week where we're starting again. So I'm going to walk through the beginning of uh, of life with Marn. You grew up in Finland. Um Tell me about growing up in Finland and how it sort of shaped you as a person now and you reflect back on the, your roots of having grown up there. Who, who are you based on why you grew up in Finland, if you, if you reflect on it? Wow, that's, uh, that's a big, big question to start with there, Scott. But uh, yes, I lived, 
lived in Finland until until I was uh, 14. So really just my childhood and, and some of my formative, you know, early teen years. And uh, not only did I live in Finland, but we actually lived in the countryside of Finland because we were in, my family was in uh, pulp and paper. So we had to be near the forests and uh, it was really an ideal um, environment to grow up in, of course. And, you know, back in those days, kids had so much more freedom than they do today. So, you know, I could go out and basically spend the day in the forest or, you know, get on my bike and go wherever. And nobody, you know, was asking after me or nobody was too worried unless I was late for dinner. And then, you know, then we were in big trouble. But uh, basically there was a lot of freedom. And, you know, so we were in nature a lot more, I think, than, than kids get to be now. Mm. And so that's really, that's really stayed with me. I think that, you know, first of all, desire to get outside all the time and uh, really the need of freedom. Now, we met through my wife, Jamie, and you guys played volleyball together. I don't even actually know the story of how you met. Is that how you met through playing volleyball together? Or did you meet someone? Well, actually, um, no, we met... We met because I uh, was playing tennis back in the day on a team, and uh, Jamie was at the same facility as as one of the trainers, you know, early, okay. early-ish in her career. And so um, I had the good fortune of really, you know, complete coincidence that I met her and asked if she could uh, help me train a little bit, which she did, and we hit it off. And, you know, then we, as we were chatting, she said, oh, you know, I used to play volleyball, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> Could we use somebody like you on our team? So happily, she said yes. And, uh, you know, the rest is history, as they say. So were you like a multi-sport athlete when you were younger? Because it sounds like you played a lot of different sports. Um, Yeah. Yes. No, I guess. Um, Well, multi-sport athlete (laughs) is not really how I've ever thought of myself. Actually, it's kind of strange because I really only found my inner athlete in my 20s. Okay. which is weird because as a kid, like when uh, in Finland, in, in the forest, we did have a sports complex and we had a fantastic volleyball coach. And so because the coach was fantastic, you know, most of us kids were somehow involved in volleyball. And uh, I always say, you know, that was that was my big claim to fame was my uh, mini mini volleyball national championship at age 13. But I didn't really do a lot of other sports back then. And also because of where we lived, um, organized sports really weren't a thing. So okay. we... We were very active just getting from place to place. Like I would, you know, bike to school, which, you know, was a five kilometer ride one way. And we, I'm not making a joke, but we would do that in the winter as well. So, you know, (laughs) rain or shine, I would bike to school. Then I would bike to volleyball rehearsal. I would bike to, you know, whatever activities we did have. So when you were doing that, you're not really looking for a lot of other sports to get involved in necessarily. Cool. So what uh, what drove you to um, move to Canada? I, I know uh, your father's work or something. You were you you took he took a job and you guys moved. Was there was there trepidation in you when you when you moved to Canada? Like where am I going? What am I doing? Or did you look at it as a neat adventure? It's where we lived. The um, the population basically was very very homogenous. Everybody was you know like everybody else. Somehow we had all grown up in the same same town, and uh, so the thought of moving to another country with a different culture and a different language and different people, I was so worried that I would never make any friends. But as luck would have it, we moved to New Brunswick straight off, mm-hmm. and uh, it's you know got to be the friendliest province. No offense to any other provinces in Canada, but uh, <laughs> I was lucky to move to New Brunswick, and you know still have I have lifelong friends from uh, from my high school days there it was a a great place to a great place to land and so what takes you out of new brunswick is it education or something else uh yeah actually what took me out of new brunswick was the fact that the uh, canadian immigration department decided that being a bass player in a rock band didn't count as a full-time job so they didn't want to extend my work visa because after (laughs) after i graduated high school i uh, played full-time in a band i took a year off and uh and so i had work visas you know i have always tried to do things by the book when i could and uh at some point they decided i was taking the job of a a canadian bass player so i had to leave and uh stayed in sweden for a bit with my sister Mm. And uh, then, you know, really I knew that I was going to be missing Canada and, you know, it came time to maybe grow up a little bit and give up the rock and roll thing or so I thought. (laughs) And so I came back to Canada to go to school and that was in uh, Kingston, Ontario. Wow. So bass playing. I really lucked into some wonderful places. Yeah, that's awesome. Bass bass playing was um, a choice by like, 
It, I found that interesting when I found out that you, I didn't even know you had a big musical piece in you. And obviously I should have known that because your son designed my, the intro and outro of this podcast. But um, how did you get into bass playing versus some other kind of instrument? Because it seems like a, kind of a, especially from your generation and my generation, a, a woman playing bass in a rock band isn't something you would sort of look up to. Like, I can't even think of a female bass player in a rock band from the 60s and 70s. Yeah, and it was a bit of an odd, it was, <laughs> was a bit of an odd choice, probably, especially, you know, for for someone in my generation, it wasn't really that common for uh, for girls to play bass back in the day. Um I had actually, in my family, we were super fortunate in that we were forced to take piano lessons. I didn't think of it as being fortunate at the time, but, uh, you know, it, we weren't asked if we wanted to take them or not. We were just, you know, your lessons are, you know, Monday night at six o'clock, get yourselves there and, and get home somehow. Mm. So I had that for eight years in Finland. But then when we moved to Canada, um, I think... At some point, I decided maybe I'm old enough now to make my own decisions at the tender age of 14. And uh, also, you know, I had a new teacher and it just really wasn't. I had always been a terrible piano student. And I only realize that now because my son, Cedric, whom you just mentioned, has had the great fortune of having some amazing teaching. And I've been able to sort of witness that and witness what the student has to do to, to learn. And uh, I just did none of that. So really, you know, eight years of piano didn't do much for my piano playing, but it did sort of give me an abiding interest in music. So when I came here, um, I had actually just left a very good friend in Finland who was a bass player, and I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I could play that instead? So that's that's how it happened. It was, you know, I was new to Canada, and I thought a new new country, new instrument, why not? That's awesome. So while you're at Queens, are you still experimenting in music, or are you just being a student? What What is the Queens lifestyle for you at that point? The Queen's lifestyle. Well, it was difficult to give up um, playing full-time, obviously. Being a, being a touring professional musician and being a full-time student are two really very different lifestyles. But uh, the other thing I think that really changed my day-to-day -day a lot was the fact that I came into Queen's thinking that I was going to do like a medial in music and a medial in economics. You know, half half sort of common sense and half following my my dreams. But I realized, you know, half halfway into my first year of that, that, you know, if I was going to be practical common sense at all, I should just go and get a business degree, which is what I did. Mm -hmm. So because I made that choice kind of, you know, switching not halfway through, but already well into the program, the, the rest of it was pretty intense. So that meant that I did not have time really for like volleyball at Queens or, or any of those fun things that a lot of other people got to, uh, got to experience. But uh, nonetheless, it was really a super, super positive, uh, positive experience for me. Yeah, well, Queens is uh, most of the people who graduate there look back very fondly on you know the small, intimate nature of the school and the and the, the town, and it, it really has its its special bars and all those kinds of things. It was actually was that another bonding aspect of your relationship with my lovely wife, who's from Kingston? <laughs> well, that's a good question. I realize I when I found out that she was from Kingston, I kind of you know nodded to myself. I'm like, ah, well, now that makes sense. <laughs> For sure. Lovely, lovely people from Kingston. Really great. So you are there. When do you meet Chris, your husband, and how do you guys connect to each other? Right. So actually, uh, let's see. I finished my commerce degree and then I once again was, you know, stuck with trying to find a way to stay in Canada because, you know, now I had <laughs> I had uh, had I'd done my Queen's thing on a student visa. Okay. And that, of course, did not, at least at the time, didn't allow people to work. But I, by then I had spent enough time to know that this, you know, I was hoping to make this my future. And so I worked super hard that first summer to find a Finnish company that would hire me here in Canada. And that's exactly mm. what happened. So that's how I ended up in Montreal. And that was in August of 85. Gosh, I shouldn't even admit how old I am. But anyway, it is what it is. That was in August of 85. And in December of that year, I was going home for Christmas. Home still being Finland at the time. Mm. And uh, in those days, Finnair used to have direct flights, which was super convenient. So I get on the flight to go home for Christmas, and there's this gentleman in the seat beside me, and, and that was that. We met on the flight going home. <laughs> That's awesome. Because he's, 
Yeah, it, it's a true story. I mean, his mother actually was from Finland. Mm. So, you know, they, he has family connections there as well. And, you know, he was a student at McGill at the time. And uh, he had, I mean, they were going there for Christmas as well. So and then and we had go. a good seven hours to chat. And that was that. Yeah, and here we are 30-something years later. Crazy. And then you got married in August uh, of 1990, I think it says uh, in your bio, so to speak. So nice. A few years later, you're getting married to this man and beginning a family. So how does how does all that sort of shift your your confluence of professional direction at that point? Like, uh, were you sort of headed on a path and then you fall in love and start to have kids and shift? Or what goes on for you there? So what goes on after that was uh, that actually... Uh, I was extremely career oriented at the time. You know, when you go through Queen's Commerce, you sort of get this, you you get this uh, road in your mind that you think you have to follow. And also my family was sort of in industry and stuff. So it just, you know, seemed to make sense that I would follow that path and, and go and work. So I, I worked first for that Finnish company and then I ended up working for a manufacturing company here in Montreal. So I, I had a good maybe let's let me think now before we even thought about having kids i had been working for a good seven eight nine ten years already mm. so it wasn't like you know get married and have kids right away sort of thing we both had uh, some other business types of things that we wanted to pursue and uh, you know there's there's time we were young when we met we were lucky that way so mm. there's so, no, no huge rush so how does uh motherhood shift your your paradigm of of thought or your direction or does it or how does it how does it affect you so to speak that's uh well in in my case it changed everything i mean i had had all these you know maybe societally imposed ideas or maybe you know because of my education or whatever i had had these ideas that i was definitely going to have hoping to have kids and uh definitely you know more than one and so in my mind i thought that we would maybe have full-time help in the home and i would continue my career and you know i might not have like a lot of quantity time with the kids but it would be all quality time and this is how I had somehow sort of you know thought it through in my head but then of course when the first one uh, when Phaedra was born I mean I realized very quickly that there is no way that I am if I can you know manage if we can manage it somehow there's no way that I'm going to go back to a full-time position that I'm not that crazy about really mm. and you know to earn money so that I can then give that money to someone else to look after my child which is really what I wanted to do so it did for me it changed everything I mean I I realize, realize everybody has a very different uh, different take on this, but uh, there was no. I was really hoping to spend a lot of time with the kids, and I'm happy to say now, 26 years out, it's been. Uh, I've been very fortunate that way that that was a possibility. That's awesome. So, as you're going through, I mean, there's a lot of time passes there, and, and I'm not. I don't want to skirt the details if there's value in any of the details. But so you're a mom, and these kids are growing up. But at some point, you have to do, uh, as you refer to it, accidentally homeschool Cedric, I believe. And what's the precipitating factor right. in doing that? And then how do you grow personally from that? Obviously, it's it's a driver of where you go next in your career or your life. So just curious how that all kind of transpires. Absolutely. That, that completely, that decision changed everything for a lot of us actually. Mm -hmm. So indeed, you know, like many, many moms do when the youngest starts getting, you know, old enough to go to preschool and school, you sort of start thinking about going back to work part-time and that's what I did. And uh, until about maybe grade three for Cedric, you know, he found himself in a situation where really his, what he was needing from school and what that particular class was giving him weren't really on the same planet, so to speak. So um, after a very long fall of trying to make it work, we just made the decision as a family that he was going to be homeschooled. He wasn't going to go to school at all. Mm. And so people were a little surprised at that. And they're like, well, how do you know what you're supposed to do? And, you know, are you allowed to do that? And you know, people had a lot of questions and, you know, aren't you worried he won't have any friends and this and that. So it wasn't it wasn't an easy decision from that point of view in the sense that, you know, we would have had the support of everybody around us because initially we didn't. But, uh, you know, looking back, it's really it's been one of the absolute best decisions for mm. for us as a family. Is how did you, then, how did how did you, you how did you grow from that? Like what what changed in you based on having to homeschool Cedric? Well, first of all, I realized that 
I have a lot to learn in a lot of areas that I haven't yet, you know, studied or trained in or, or whatever. So I was learning like even some of the subjects right along him, which was really, really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And then I started really asking questions about, you know, who, who decides what somebody has to learn and when they have to learn it. Mm. Like all these sort of like bigger questions around education and why is it set up the way it is? And, you know, that really led to doing a lot of research on how learning actually happens. Mm-hmm. And so eventually, um, while doing that, and of course, you know, by that time, thankfully, we had Facebook and other online groups. I don't know how people homeschooled before, before all this online access, because you could, you could find anything. And, you mm-hmm. know, the, at that time, the homeschooling community in Montreal was tiny, but growing. So there were more and more, you know, group activities happening. So he was still able to you know, do some uh, group like uh, phys ed classes or drama or, you know, art classes. Like there was a lot going on with other homeschoolers as well. So it's not like we sat at home and did Mm. things. But when we did sit at home, I was researching, you know, how does learning happen? And then at some point I called a professor at McGill who, you know, I think back to this now, you know, having spent more time there and and learned more about the academic, um, you know, lifestyle or life in general. Um, he was kind enough to spend 45 minutes with me on the phone and we were just chatting about, you know, education and how do you make sure that whatever, you know, passions, talents, abilities, gifts people have, how can we support those, you know, individually and still, you know, fit into the the bigger picture. So sooner or later that led to me applying for a master's at, uh, at McGill been fascinating. I, I, none of this would have happened had it not been the, for the fact that my youngest child wasn't a great fit for the mm. school that he was in at the time. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm kind of curious, though, off of that, like, um, for all the people listening, but but I think everybody sort of struggles at times with the idea of homeschooling, is how how did you, for lack of a better word, balance your needs as a, as a human being with the and your ability to continue to grow without being sort of sucked into a vacuum of all the stuff that you had to do to on a daily basis to support and enrich his growth so to speak like i think some people look at school as an opportunity to sort of you know without without sounding you know, not offload your kids, but it's a, they go to school and you kind of get on to the things that you're going to do on for you. How do you, how did you separate those things for yourself? Right. Reconditioninghq.com is announcing the creation of the R Pro series. There are now four steps to becoming a reconditioning professional. It all starts with our signature course, R1 Foundations, that sets you up with this unique, holistic approach to integrating the power of therapeutic practice and performance practice. This course, as well as the second course in our series, R2 Designs, is completely online. You can register and digest all the content from the comfort of your own home. Each course comes with a Zoom Lab experience where we take all the information and work with you to ensure you completely understand how to align it with your own practice. The third step, the R3 experience. This is a complete eight-week mentorship online where we go deep on the entire process and make certain you are prepared to succeed. Finally, we'll be releasing our first R4 collab sometime near the end of 2021. This will be an incredible live event where we use collaborative teaching design to manipulate the process with you and everyone in attendance so that everyone learns the nuances of the reconditioning process and leave being prepared to call yourself a reconditioning professional. For more information on all our courses, including our landmark personal development program, Empower You, please check out reconditioninghq.com today and use the coupon code LYM50 for $50 off any one of our course offerings. You want data? We've got data. You can now add real-time biometric testing and data monitoring to your Isofit MSK. Thanks to our partnership with Kinvent, you can easily transform your Isofit MSK into a state-of-the-art testing and training platform. Monitoring your athlete's progress has never been easier. With the K-Force Isofit Pack, you can easily send real-time acoustic and optic biofeedback to your smartphone or tablet. 
To learn more about the Isofit MSK and K-Force Isofit Pack, visit www.isofitphitmsk.ca today. Matrix Fitness Canada partners with coach Mark Fitzgerald to oversee its athletic performance program across the country. Mark is based in Kelowna, BC, with operations in multiple provinces serving athletes and families of various age groups. Most recently, the strength and conditioning coach for the Anaheim Ducks. Mark is also the head of performance and owns Elite Training Systems, a high-performance training center that caters to athletes across multiple sports. Matrix Fitness views all of us as athletes, and it is our goal to make better movement and fitness accessible to all. The Matrix Fitness Canada performance team will assist with program development, space and facility consults, and developing outreach programs for organizations who train competitive athletes and athletes at heart. Matrix Fitness has a full portfolio of fitness, performance, and medical equipment and programs designed to serve various populations. For more information on how Matrix can help with your objectives, go to teamupwithmatrix.com forward slash CA today. Right. Yeah, um, I think that is less of a problem when you're homeschooling than when you're schooling online, like in the situation that people find themselves in right now mm. with the pandemic and, you know, online learning and having to support that and having to work from home like that. That pressure is really completely different from what we experienced back then. Like in, in my day, it was very simple because, first of all, when you do homeschool and when you're not following the school curriculum, which we didn't, mm. um, you don't have the pressures to do certain things at certain times of day. Like when we first started homeschooling, yes, you know, if we, if we had a schedule. So if it was nine o'clock on Wednesday morning, we would do math, for example. Mm. But the more I studied and learned and talked to people and read, the more I realized that we were throwing away a huge opportunity mm. to, to be more student-led and interest-led. So we really, we became unschoolers. I tend to talk about homeschoolers because unschooling is sort of a, you know, a term that maybe not as many people are familiar with, but basically it's student-led or mm. learner-led learning. So the stuff that we had to do, quote-unquote, was really very minimal and didn't take that long. Mm. And so what happens when people of any age, and certainly, you know, kids, when they have a chance to pursue the things that they're passionate about, they get very independent in their learning mm. very quickly. So in Cedric's case, for example, I mean, yes, there was the music bit, which was huge for him. So he was already then, you know, playing many instruments and learning many instruments and going to all those lessons and then, you know, finding finding music production things online that he could entertain, quote unquote, entertain himself with. So he was learning to do these things on his own. Mm. And he, he was finding, he was passionate about space, for example, and science. So he was finding incredible YouTube things. So I would be sort of more like a facilitator to find different opportunities mm. that he could try and, you know, of course, the, the more advanced things got, the more important it was for me to find someone who was really an expert in mm. that area and sort of, you know, have this tray of things like here, you know, what are the things that you're interested in? Mm. And contrary to what people think, uh, kids will not sit at home and play video games all day given a chance because they get so bored so quickly. Mm-hmm. And there's this need for learning that all human beings have. Mm. So in, in my case, it was easy because my passion at the time was learning about learning. Mm. So while, while he was learning and I was guiding that on the side, it certainly was not a full-time job. Far, mm. far from it. So there was so much more time to really pursue things that were of interest to us because there was no sort of fluff. You know, there wasn't mm-hmm. anything to fill the day or, you know... Um, exercises like you wouldn't need to do something five times if you got it the first time right etc so it for we were lucky that way i really really feel for parents who right now are you know at home with kids and and having to find ways to keep up their kids interest and help with their work while at the same time doing their own work remotely which is still a fairly new situation for for a lot of people so we we were we were lucky we didn't have that problem well i'm, I'm interested to to split off of sort of what you went through and then you go into your educational process and, you know, we're, we're kind of reaching, um, a new call it place now in, because of COVID in some ways and this digital online learning, um, that education is probably never going to be the same. Um, it's going to have to adapt. What are, what are we doing? Like, 
what are we doing wrong that we could be doing better that would allow the two worlds of call it structured learning and call it unschooling work work either together or harmoniously to create a better end game. Cause I really like what I hear and what you're saying. And I'm curious how we get a, how we create a better mousetrap, so to speak, Um, you know, combining some of these, these value things, because the, the thing that I'm interested also, and I know I'm babbling on here too, is um, sometimes I think people worry and I'd love for you to sort of talk about that when you get into call it an unschooling framework that you potentially close doors for opportunity in your child's life later on because they haven't uh, invested in a particular area of study or knowledge that may they may need at some future point in order to explore something they're interested in as an example Mm -hmm. so the interpretation of standard education is that it gives you all the the foundational points that you can then decide, well, I want to become a doctor, I go there. If I want to become a lawyer, I go there. If I want to become a, a judge, I go here. All the things that I could could or couldn't do. Um, so to talk about that a little bit. Uh, I know it's a big question, but I'm interested in unpacking that a little bit. That that is, I mean, that's really that is the big question. Exactly is is how do we you know keep some structure while really allowing more freedom for people to to maybe chart their own paths. And that was one of the questions that a lot of people asked us when we first embarked on this, like, oh my gosh, you know, how are you going to make sure that he has everything he needs? So I think there are a lot of, there are a lot of points here. One of them is that we think that by having the formal education that we now do, we think that that opens, you know, all the doors if the kids can stick with it. But really what happens is there's not a lot of depth in any of those areas. Mm. And so, you know, one of the criticisms, I'm not really sure if I agree with this, but a lot of people are suggesting that right now, you know, nobody comes out of school really passionate about anything because they're sort of force-fed everything. Mm. So so they're, you're sort of, you know, average or mediocre at everything and you haven't really had time to pursue the, the passions that that you would want to pursue. So, for example, one of the things that I really liked that the uh, the Quebec education minister did was uh, offering the uh, the sports study, the Sportedid program, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where where they compress the academic day into half a day, and those are like the still the required subjects. So you get your you know social studies and geography and you know whatever the required subjects are these days. But then you have the afternoon free to train at high mm-hmm. level in your passion. So I think that's you know one really nice program. So I was really hoping that they might have developed something like that for you know instead of a sports study it could have been like music study for example where the classes would have been compressed and then you would have the afternoon free but uh, that was not an option. It's still I don't think is an option. So in in our case, you know, actually Cedric decided that he did want to go to school for grade nine, ten, and eleven. So it was you know eight to eight to three. There was no choice there. But really, the idea would be for things, but not force a lot of things on people. So more freedom and more flexibility. And you know, even now, um, I think, and this is purely my personal opinion, I think it would be really important to offer parents the choice of having their child study online or go to school. Mm. But there tends to be this sort of thinking that, you know, the, the, the ministry knows best and this is what your child is going to do. Right. And I think if there was more flexibility there and sort of more understanding that it's not like one size really does not fit all. Mm-hmm. So to have have more of a, a library of resources, you know, library figuratively, mm. of resources that parents could access, I think, because people don't need the same things. Right. And, so the, uh, and and making everybody do the same thing in the same order is is really detrimental. I think. Sorry, what's the what's the what's your viewpoint on the socialization side of things? Like the some people's viewpoint on unschooling or homeschooling is that the kids don't get to connect with their peers or their friends, and so they're le- losing that skill set. Then, how 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 did you address that, or how do you view that now? Yeah, that's uh, that is a valid question until you become homeschooling slash unschooling, 
um, or until you start doing it, because then you realize that really homeschooling should be called never at homeschooling because you're always out. And there are so many more and more now, there are more and more activities with other people who are doing, let's call it alternative schooling perhaps. Mm -hmm. So there are a ton of activities. And one of the criticisms of regular schooling is that you, the child, are stuck in the same room with peers of the same age all day. And that's not how life works either. Whereas in homeschooling or unschooling, you have, you're exposed to people of, you know, more diverse backgrounds, basically, and different ages, just as you are later in life. So you're not sort of in this artificial environment that because you're nine now, you are in a room full of nine-year-olds for most of your day. That's not really, that's not really a natural sort of, of way to go through life right. either. Of course, the other thing is that people have different needs for social inter different levels of social interaction. So some people can be surrounded by people all the time and there are ways to do that as a as a homeschooler as well. Mm. And other people are happier to spend some time on their own learning and then going out and you know interacting and then coming back and, and doing their own their own uh, passion project as it were. Well I'm I'm interested actually off of that um you know there's always a a debate in in my industry, especially in human performance, but uh, you know, I think it stems across all of uh, human nature. Is this um, the the lean towards comfort or the lean towards difficulty or challenge? And um, some people naturally like to force themselves through challenge, and others avoid it. And I'm curious. Um, in your educational process now and how you look at things, like there are going to be kids that gravitate towards their own sort of, uh, and, and adults who gravitate towards their own sort of pathway and others who have to be sort of pushed a little bit to jump in the water and find out what it's like. If you, if you know what I'm sort of going with this and I'm kind of curious how you feel we negotiate those two sides. Like as an example, let's say Cedric, you know, he, he was really interested in music, but you know, you wanted him to also experience, you know, something physical that maybe he didn't, didn't want to do. So you put him in karate and he sort of pushes back from that. But how do you know when to push more so that they experience it versus allow them to walk away from it because it's not something they're comfortable with? That's a huge question for parents everywhere, yeah. I think. Yeah. For sure, for sure. And if I had the answer to that, I, <laughs> I, I, would, be, I would be consulting a lot of parents on it. But uh, so much really has to do with, uh, with temperament, too. Mm -hmm. You know, some people are um, really hesitant to try new things. And for sure, you have to really, you have to cajole and suggest and support. And I mean, I would never ever force a kid to, you know, stay longer in anything than, than they were comfortable with. Mm -hmm. um, what we did with the others too, like for example, uh, my eldest Phaedra at some point uh, also didn't like the piano lessons that I had idealistically figured that all the kids were going to have. <laughs> didn't, didn't work out that way in this generation, but uh, when she stopped them, uh, she wanted to take guitar instead. And I said, okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to get a set of four lessons and we're going to do those four and we're going to practice and I'll practice with you. You know, we'll do them together, but we're at least going to do those four. Mm -hmm. So she's like, okay. And then on the way back, she was maybe eight or nine at this point. And on the way back from the fourth of those lessons, she's like, okay, thanks. I'm done. <laughs> so, you know, you almost, you almost want to like negotiate ahead of time. You know, we're going to give this enough of a chance like we're not going to go and, and turn around at the door and say, ah, you know, it's not for me sort of thing. Like you want to make sure that you, as you said, you know, go into the water long enough to realize that, oh, actually, this is kind of nice. Mm. That's, that, that's really a great, uh, that's a, a great question and a big battle, I think, for a lot of parents. Like when do you know? Mm. that they really don't like it and, and wouldn't like it, even if they stuck with it a bit longer. That also has to do with the kids, not just temperament, but their abilities, perhaps. Mm. Because, you know, when they, when they try something new and they have ability in it, obviously it's going to be easier for them and maybe more fun more quickly. 
So somehow, naturally, people maybe tend to gravitate towards those things that they could develop a true passion and, you know, do the work, like not just coast because it comes easily, but also do the work. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have that interest or that sort of, I mean, ability, for lack of a better word, to start with, then no amount of hard work is really... right. You know, it's always going to be a battle. Well, I think that that's really valuable. And I think it leans into the next question I have with you, which I think kind of wraps into some of the work you've done in your PhD and things is this idea of creating creative thinking Mm -hmm. and creative for, for me, as I've sort of grown through my life and now look back and then also the work that I do now, I feel like, I feel like creativity is the kind of center post of, of humans. What differentiates us from other animals in some sense, like we're thinkers, but we're also we like to create things Mm -hmm. and it's this desire to create that we need to find what that fire is in ourselves and so the idea of education and educational experience sort of lights the fire different ways and a lot of times you'll find that a mentor some teacher a parent uh, a friend or something ignites that fire in a kid and then they all all of a sudden discover that creativity and so I'm, I'm kind of interested you know with the research you've done and stuff where where context influences creative thinking etc what have what have you taken away that you think are the fire lighters because i think it's natural for children to be creative and mm-hmm. and in some ways you're what we do to adults as they go into in and we go into adulthood we almost have off creativity by our educational process and in some ways i think the idea of trying to keep creativity as a a center post to your point is and and just sort of let the fire bloom itself so what have you learned in doing your phd about creativity and sort of setting the soil for it you're absolutely right in that children are innately creative. Like if you ask a five-year-old, you know, who's who's creative, all the hands will go up in the room if, if you're mm-hmm. in a room of, of five-year-olds. Mm-hmm. But then when you start asking 12-year-olds or 16-year-olds or, you know, 25-year-olds, are you creative? That percentage really goes down mm-hmm. a lot. And it's not even just their self-perception, but if you give them like these traditional tests of creativity, which are really tests of divergent thinking, mm-hmm. like, you know, how many uses for a paperclip and those types of tests, mm-hmm. uh, the, the results go down as well. So a five-year-old is brilliantly, like 98% of them, I think, have so many divergent uses that their scores come in at what they call genius level mm-hmm. of creativity, but it goes down and it goes down and it goes down. And so for sure, one thing is the the way we educate, which tends to be really about, you know, what's called deliberate practice. So where you have a, a training program or a learning program where you are sort of very sequentially taught that this is how things are and there tends to be only one real and one right answer to whatever problem you're asked to work on. So that sort of learning definitely limits creativity because it doesn't even ask you to think about options. It just asks you to find that one solution and it really assumes that there is only one solution, which, you know, may be true in algebra in, in, you know, grade nine, but isn't true in life later on. So we're really trained to find that one right answer and life is not like that. And of mm. course, the other, the other thing that happens through uh, adolescence is the, the peer pressure. You know, when, when you have an idea and when you suddenly, you know, think of something different, you are suddenly in a minority of one, right? You are... Right. You are, you are now, you know, stepping out from your group, stepping outside the box. Mm. And in the through the teen years the you know being like everyone else is developmentally appropriate but it also stifles that sort of um you know being brave enough to actually mm. go out on a limb and, and suggest things right so the whole factor of you know being in an environment where you are supported to think differently and to have different ideas is is really important. I'm uh, fortunate right now to be working with McGill on a, a large international project, which is um, organized by the OECD, mm-hmm. a multi-year project where they are working with universities around the world to find ways to better support um, creative and critical thinking in higher education. Because, you know, by the time kids come through schools, they've just, they've learned to learn a certain way. And so, you know, professors are, are sort of stuck with with these people whose maybe thinking has been, I mean, curtailed is a strong word, but who certainly haven't been trained to, you know, be broad in their options sort of thing. So supporting faculty and not just um, 
you know, uh, supporting or fostering creative thinking, but also finding ways to assess it, which is interesting. Mm. Because well, you, you mentioned the door, sorry, you mentioned the doors yeah. earlier that you want to be sure that, that, you know, you keep your doors open. So at some point, we also need to be able to assess and, and give some sort of, um, you know, reliable feedback so that an outsider can look at it and go, oh, you did this, that was very creative. Mm-hmm. And, and sort of even, even just developing the language around creative thinking and critical thinking. What, what is it? What does it look like? How do we measure it? Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. I, I asked that question about the doors closing because I wanted to hear what your viewpoint was. But as I also have my own viewpoint as I've grown uh, through my own life now that I think sometimes we have too, that is too much of a foundation of our belief system from an mm-hmm. early education perspective. And it, and it in fact, self it's a self-perpetuating sort of um end game because by trying to open doors you actually close them and you don't actually realize that you you can open any door you want anytime you want in your life i mean you're an example of that for sure and i think there are lots of different examples where we can you know go into it if we have that creative spirit and we have that energy around our passions and we've embraced that and we've learned to own that then we will explore something that interests us at age 45 or 50 or whatever yes. that we wouldn't you know maybe have done and i don't really think we close doors by uh, i think that's a, f- a fallacy in some sense so i think it's kind of neat to get there with the conversation with you I think that's absolutely true. And I think that's, you know, if, if there was one message that, you know, maybe people would get from this would be exactly that. It's never too late. Mm-hmm. It's never too late if you have the interest. And I think people are afraid of, you know, not going with the traditional schooling because what if, and, and what if, you know, what if I do close these doors? But it's, as you say, it's exactly the opposite that happens. Mm-hmm. Close the doors to thinking about what is it you want to do and why do you mm-hmm. want to do it? And it's, you can easily go back and learn things. Like there are stories, for example, of homeschoolers who did no math. I mean, that wasn't us. That was one of the things I insisted on was, you know, keeping up with the math and, and you know, doing different things around that. But there are stories of people who at age maybe 16 or 17 realize that they're actually really interested in science, for example, and now they want to go to college for it, mm-hmm. but they haven't done the math. So they go back and learn, you know, five, six years of, you know, pre-algebra, algebra, pre-calculus, all that stuff, because now they are interested and now mm-hmm. they have a reason to learn it. So even if it's sort of a formal structured thing that you've somehow missed, you can always go back and get it. Mm-hmm. And then you have it very differently than you would had you been force-fed it, you know, earlier. Mm-hmm. So for sure, the, those doors are always open. That's awesome. I think I'm going to use that as my pivot point for reading my little purpose statement to you. So um, from my book, The Day You Were Born, you are born July 1st. And as you said, another great mm-hmm. reason to become Canadian. So, um, exactly. so that makes you a yeah. cancer one. So your purpose is to use both strength and weakness to manifest your creative talents, turning adversity into advantage by your ability to use all sides of yourself spontaneously and without fear, to share your strength and fears with others, helping them to grow. In this dynamic, sun and moon should have equal billing. Unfortunately, balance is not easily maintained. For the cancer, the needs of others are probably overwhelming. There is a magic word that can make everyone disappear if said with conviction. It's no. The moon and the sun will be in harmony when when yes and no have equal opportunity. The sun and moon dynamics must know its limits. The cancer environment is very indulgent. Whatever cancer offers, the world will take and ask for more. Their competitive spirit also makes it hard for them to say no. Leslie Caron, a wonderful actress and dancer, had to leave Hollywood in order to stop the excessive demands placed on her most most miserable period in my life. I hate musicals. I hate toe shoes. And from 8.30 in the morning until 6 every night, I was constantly in agony. I had bruises and sprains and couldn't heal. When I walked out of Hollywood after years of unhappiness, Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly both told me, Leslie, you're so smart to quit while you you still can walk. The cancer should practice setting limits and their reward will be space enough in which to express themselves. Mm. How does that resonate? <clears throat> wow, that's uh, 
Well, what what I love about you know only this part of it. Usually, when there's a when there's a horoscope thing, then you know the next section is you know these are these are the negative things about you. But this was all uh, this was all interesting and and very uh, very sort of balanced. Um, mm. I liked the thing about the strengths and weaknesses. Like if I think back to right before we started unschooling, and I'm really on this unschooling thing for some reason right now. But if I think back to that fall, it was a very, very difficult fall before we made that decision. Mm. Because we were just, we were trying to make something work that was just, you know, looking back, there was no way on this earth it was going to work. But we tried so hard to, you know, stuff that square peg into the round hole. And uh, so that balance of, you know, maybe taking something that is a problem and, and then turning it into what actually in hindsight was such an amazing decision. Mm. That's um, that's a, a thought that I get from that. And uh, yeah, it's hard to say no. It's very, very hard to say no. You, you know how that is, I'm sure. <laughs> It's really hard to say no, but I'm working on it. And, you know, yeah. that's one of the one of the few great things about getting older is that it really becomes a lot easier to sort of figure out what you want and, yeah. you know, make sure that you don't completely lose yourself in the process of, you know, trying to be helpful and kind and, you know, share of your learning and, you know, all that thing. So, yeah, I, I think I'm going to work on saying no a bit more often. That's, that's, a, <laughs> that's great advice. Thank you for that. <laughs> Well, it's, it sounded for me, not knowing you well, but just reading the thing, the, the, the whole thing, uh, I almost see what they described in your life in what the description description of that woman's sort of career in the sense that you had embraced the, the decision to get formally educated and get a business degree and all these kinds of things. But then through the fluxum and jetsum of your life, you've now sort of found w what sounds like your passionate spirit and, and recognize that that's where you want to go. You have all these great, all these great foundational characters that you've picked up over time through different experiences, but now you're kind of, you've decided, Hey, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to explore this part of myself and creativity and things like that. Yeah, that's really true. I love how you how you phrase that. And it's true that if if you let yourself walk away from situations that you know aren't serving you, mm. that's really critical. And and that's what I did. Actually a couple of different times, both for myself and then, you know, in family situations where the kids needed to to be out of something that was not serving them well. Um, I think a lot of people struggle with that because we have this feeling of, you know, this is this is expected of me, so therefore I'm going to continue that. But mm -hmm. then then I've also realized that one of the other things that I'm now getting into learning more and more about is the psychological safety of situations. Mm -hmm. You know, fe feeling like you belong and feeling like you're you're accepted and feeling like you can challenge the status quo if and when you need to. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't have that. A lot of environments don't offer that. Mm. And so for environments that want to support creative thinking and innovation, like that is such a foundational piece. And I'm only now in hindsight realizing that the places that we've left or the activities or the situations that we've left really all have that in common. They mm. were not they were not welcoming. They were not supportive. Mm. They were not creativity supporting places specifically, so that's that's something I'm I have just recently learned. So, if, if you had a piece of advice for somebody who was building a business or a team or an organization to that point, what do you think are some of the um, critical uh, success factors in 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 a building a creative environment where people a can embrace their creativity, B, can have success, and C, actually get together to, to, to em, empower the business itself or the yeah. organization itself. Right. Well, I think really the, the critical thing to, especially if, you know, if it's more than one person, if you have even a team of two, mm. but, uh, and the bigger the team gets, the more important it gets to be that you have diversity within that because it's just so easy to, you know, be drawn to people who are like us and who think like us and who may look like us or, or whatever, or mm -hmm. people who think like us. Mm -hmm. But it's so important to be open to that, you know, opposing viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of organizations without realizing just really tend to um, sort of lean towards the, the majority viewpoint, whatever the majority is, right. and not even understand that there are people at the table whose voices are not being heard. Mm. 
Mm. So really to develop the sort of culture where we make sure that everybody is heard because why else, you know, would they be part of this team? Mm-hmm. And sometimes to, sometimes to do that, you might need to, you know, do some, do some work on figuring out how, you know, what, even what the emotional culture is of an mm. organization. And a lot of this is very subtle and sort of undercurrents. You know, there, it might be a team that really on the surface looks like it's functioning beautifully. But are you really getting everybody's viewpoints? Are you getting that diversity of thinking? And so then when you have diversity of thinking, you also have emotional diversity. And so then you need to be able to understand that and know what to do about it. And a lot of organizations don't don't mm-hmm. have these discussions because they don't really know where to start. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's uh, I think that's a critical piece for any team wanting to uh, to do something together. Well, it's, that's an interesting piece, and I'm I'm kind of curious where you kind of align or or your thoughts on. Um, there's two sides of that equation. There's the one side of getting people's viewpoints, um, in embracing uh, differences, and trying to sort of come to a common uh, direction. But then there's also decision making. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. you take in this information, you you weigh people's viewpoints, but you then have to make a course and 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 decide where that's going to go. Even sometimes when it goes against um, perhaps the the values of another individual in the, or or a team of individuals in the group. Um, you know, I know it's a big question, but in, in your current you know process, where do you sort of how do you feel you you negotiate that? You take in those critical viewpoints, but you also, at the end of the day, make hard decisions to move forward. Well, exactly. I mean, the, the whole idea of inviting those divergent viewpoints is great, but some po- at some point, we do need to converge, as you say, on, on mm-hmm. that course of action. Um, I think one thing that would help a lot of decision makers is just knowing the research on the fact that diverse teams make better decisions something like 78% of the time. There's a lot of information out there to sort of um, maybe give leaders that confidence that, yeah, I should actually listen to others. Like, yeah, I think I know what I'm talking about, but I do need to listen to others. Mm. And then really it becomes a question of having the maybe the emotional intelligence to work in a way that influences others without necessarily coming down and putting your foot down and say, you know, this is how we're going to do it. So it's really sort of developing a more collaborative way of arriving at those decisions and influencing people's thinking and their decision making Mm. rather than, you know, stopping the process halfway and saying, okay, well, thanks for your, thanks for your input. Now I'm going to (laughs) decide. Yeah, so. makes makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, I want to sort of circle into um, closing, but I was really curious what you know. How does how has Chris balanced you in your your life? Like, what 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 does he balance in in you? Oh gosh, well, the, for starters, he's a morning person. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Going through, going through this whole thing uh, without a morning person helping with, you know, getting the day started would never have happened. So that's uh, that's really huge. And uh, the other thing is that uh, he has the same beliefs that I do about wanting to spend time with family. So he has uh, coached the kids through that they've all played soccer, some at very high level, some at house league, some somewhere in between. He has coached or managed all their teams for years. Wow. So he he's been a huge part of. Uh, really make the whole sort of the whole circus come together and uh, you know when when you are lucky enough to have a partner who is present like that that's fantastic mm, that's awesome this would not have worked any other way if you know if, if he didn't have the the beliefs about fatherhood that he has we none of us would be here in the mm. situation that we are right now that's awesome. So, um, last question: If you were to bump into the gal who was starting at Queen's University, um, her education, and you ran into uh, the Marn of that time in a, in a school hallway and had an opportunity to chat, what would you say to her? Wow. Um, part of me wants to say that you know, switch subjects, study something else. <laughs> 
honestly, because like now, now I'm looking back and I'm thinking there are so many other things I could have studied and would have wanted to study and, you know, maybe still in the future will study. Mm. So part of me wants to say that. But on the other hand, what I'm doing right now and trying to help teams and organizations would not be possible if I didn't have those, you know, 10, 12, 15 solid years of experience in that world. Mm. You know, how, how do you go in and help someone if you don't really understand what they're living in? Right. So I would say to her, you know, stick this out, keep your mind open, keep your eye open, know that sometimes you do things for the long run that might not be fun right now. So you have to sort of balance the, you know, follow your passions with occasionally doing things that are really more hard work, but you understand that you're doing them for a reason. Mm. And and look for that reason and be open to whatever may come. Because, you know, we plan. Like, I tend to be a planner, but plans don't always work out. Mm-hmm. So be open to whatever happens and listen to others and include them in your in your way of doing things. Awesome. Well, we got through our technical difficulties and had a great conversation. It was wonderful to spend an hour with you on Saturday during the big snowstorm. So thanks for taking the time today, Martin. Thank, thank you, Scott. It's really it's, it was an honor to be invited. You have some uh, some extremely interesting people on your on your podcast, and uh, it's nice to chat with you too. I mean, I've I've known you more as Jamie's husband than <laughs> than you know a person. So it was great to know you, and I look forward to getting to know both of you guys more. That's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Payne, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.